1: you have an airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host what in the world is happening on wall street economic
0: indicators who knows where this is going to end up to understand the economy you have to understand human nature Welcome to the David McWilliams podcast. It's a pretty miserable looking Thursday. It looks as if it's about to lash rain here in Dublin. Now, you shouldn't hear from me twice a week, but there was such an overwhelming reaction to the podcast we released earlier this week on AOC, or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. The movement of the left in America, American politics, why the young are going left and why the housing market is essential In understanding this and how the housing market has been driven upward by QE and therefore priced out the young. And they're saying, hold on a second, if we can't even have a basic stake in society, well, why not shift left? At least give this a chance. So we get a massive, massive reaction to it. And as a result of that, I thought, let's have a listen to a conversation I had with the man who represents the left in the United States, Bernie Sanders. What happened was he came to the Dalky Book Festival and it was amazing to meet himself and his Mrs Jane who's a total hoot. An actual fact for the Paddies out there she did a DNA test when she was here and she's 96% Irish. Now I bet you that's more Irish than any of us. Anyway... Bernie and I we sat down in the Board Gosh theater we had a great conversation we covered all sorts of issues from economics to culture to society we even touched on the issue of abortion which i see is flaring up again in the united states with the change in the abortion laws in the southern states of the states so it was a fascinating conversation and here you are a chat with the man who could well be the next president of the united states bernie sanders Can I ask you about the, the campaign? Because the book is extraordinary when you get into it, about a campaign where no name recognition, you're against the odds, you're from Vermont, you know, this is, you know, everything's going against you. And you say, well, you know, let's... The message is enough. My message is enough. At what moment did you and your team and Jane think, there's something here? Well, that's a good question. Um... You know,
1: <laughs> you know, when we started, you know, we knew nothing about running for the presidency of the United States. That is a tough assignment, you know, that's a difficult thing to do. We knew nobody, almost nobody, in other states. And it ended up that I did not have the support of one governor in the United States of America, one senator is all I had a handful of members of Congress, so we had the entire political establishment. Of all the newspapers in America, all the major newspapers in America, we got one newspaper to endorse my candidacy. So we were taking on the entire establishment. But what happened is we started our campaign in my own beautiful city of Burlington, Vermont, and we want you all to come and visit us sometime. (laughs) Probably in the summer, not the winter. And we started off we said, Jane said, we were arguing about, well, all right, how, where do you start the campaign? And we usually started off in a church and we'd have 500 or 1,000 people out. Jane said, no, let's do it outside, see what happens. Well, what time should we do it? We don't know. Do it midday, do it after work, whatever. So we ended up doing it at five o'clock in the afternoon. It turned out to be a beautiful, beautiful uh, spring day. And to our amazement, almost 6,000 people in Vermont came out for that opening statement. That's a lot of people. I think it's the largest political turnout maybe ever in Vermont. And then the next day, we went to New Hampshire, which plays a very important role in American presidential politics, the second state in America to hold uh, an election during the primary. And uh, we went to the first place, the first venue, and the place overflowed. We had to go out and speak to another people. Then in the night, we went to another town, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, the church exploded, just had many, 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 many hundreds of people there. And then what would happened is, when we started going around the country, there'd be more and more and more people coming out. And to answer your question why, I think it was that people really wanted to hear some kind of explanation as to what was happening in their lives. Why were we in America? the only major country not to have health care for all. Why were people working longer hours for lower wages? Why was there so much poverty? Why were wor- women working at the same jobs as men and getting paid less? Et cetera, et cetera. And people started responding to the message. And then all kinds of extraordinary things happened. You know, we read in the paper that somewhere in a the state there's a rally that people started doing all kinds of crazy things. We unleashed an incredible barrage of spontaneity, spontaneity and creative activity. And then as the campaign progressed, the crowds became longer and a bit larger and larger. I mean, this is a you know, beautiful, beautiful uh, a crowd tonight. This would be, in some cases, 10% of the type of turnouts that we have. We went to Portland, Oregon. And there is a stadium there where the professional basketball team plays, which has some 25,000 people. We filled it up, and there were people outside. Went to Los Angeles. I mean, this was really unbelievable. And we ended up talking during the campaign at meetings like this to 1.3 million Americans. So... I think we tapped into something, that the American people were sick and tired of establishment politics, status quo politics. They wanted a new politics. They wanted to think big, not small. They wanted to imagine what America could be like, rather than just quibbling around the edges. So
0: You, you write, I think, very sensitively about a lot of Trump supporters, for yeah. example. And I'm always intrigued when I watch you on YouTube and you're asked, typically in a partisan uh, crowd, you know, what do you think of the Trump supporters? The easiest thing is to say, well, they're racist, they're this, that, that. That's right. And you say, well, hold on a second. My support and Trump's support are not that dissimilar. A lot of the people who voted for Trump could quite easily have gone to Bernie. They didn't want establishment. They wanted an alternative. To what extent is that still a very fertile base for some future ideas?
1: I think it is very easy, as you've just said, and something that I disagree with, to dismiss all of Trump's supporters as racists, or sexist or xenophobes, or whatever it may be. And I'm not going to deny for one second that there is some of that, absolutely. There's some white supremacy there, etc., some bad stuff. But I think that for the average Trump supporter, this is a person, and it's not different in Europe. I don't think it's different in in France or elsewhere. These are people who have worked hard their entire lives, and the world and the world's economy has passed them by. So how would you feel if you worked for 30 or 40 years in a factory, you were proud of the work you did, you earned a good wage, maybe you had a union behind you, you had a retirement plan, you had something that you were proud of, and your community was doing well. And suddenly, one day, some guy says, we're shutting you down because we can make more money by going to Mexico and pay, paying people there 20% what you got. How would you feel? And then you go out and you look for work because you're a proud person and you want to work, and you got a job flipping hamburgers for a third of the wages that you used to make. How would you feel about that? And nobody cares that this is happening to your life. In fact, you watch, turn on TV and they say, the economy is doing great. How do you feel if you are a working class kid who graduated college $50,000 in debt and making 10 bucks an hour right now. And decade after decade, I talked to a guy who was paying off his college loans for 25 years and was more in debt today than he was 25 years ago because of interest rates. How would you feel? How would you feel? How would you feel if you're working longer hours and your real inflation account for wages are going down? And mostly what people, these people, I think, worry about It's not only their own lives. They can live with that. They can feel that pain. It is what happens to their children. And Let me just say something very briefly. My wife thinks I make too much of this, but I think it's important. (laughs) Because I want to speak to the level of despair in certain parts of America. There are certain parts of America where things economically are going very, very, very well. Great futures. People are doing well. If you go to West Virginia, you go to Kentucky, you go to other states that have a lot of white working class people, what you are seeing today is a phenomenon that has never been seen in the modern history of the United States. And that is, as you know, and I'm sure it's true here in Ireland and all over the world, everything being equal because of the improvements in medicine and, and medicine and so forth, and, and, and health care, and environmental protection, People live longer lives. Life expectancy throughout the industrialized world is going up. Our generation will live longer than our parents. They live longer than their parents. And that's the way it is. There are now large swaths of the United States of America where white working class people are dying at younger ages than their parents. First time this has ever been recorded. And the reason for that, and what the sociologists call it, is they are dying of illnesses of despair. They're going nowhere. Their kids are going nowhere. And they are responding to that reality by becoming addicted to opioids, which is a terrible problem throughout America and in my state, growth in heroin addiction, which is a killer, growth in alcoholism, and even suicide. And in those communities, Trump ended up doing phenomenally well. And what those people, I think, were saying, not from a racist or a sexist perspective, they are saying, hey, can't be any worse than it is right now. We're going to roll the dice, and we're going to take a chance. So which gets me back when I talk about where we are politically in the United States. I say again, it wasn't that Trump so much that Trump won is that the Democratic Party in fact turned its back on those people. And if we're going to regain democracy in America in a vibrant way, we have got to understand that those lives in West Virginia and Kentucky and in rural America are as important as anybody else's life, and we've got to help those communities become rebuilt.
0: What one thing should or could the Democrats have done to secure US election win and prevent Trump becoming what one thing. Instead of I mean it's there are more
1: than one thing, Mary. There's, okay. there's a lot many time. things, many things. But at the very least, what the Democratic Party should have done. Ready to pop the question? is instead of spending so much of its time, and this is a problem, and I understand it. I don't mean to minimalize it. As I mentioned to you, you have people like the Koch brothers spending hundreds of millions of dollars. And the other side, our people have got to go out and raise money as well. But we spent too much damn time around rich people raising money rather than doing meetings and going out into communities of working-class people and bringing them into the process. That would be the one thing.
0: Okay, I'm, I'm... On that issue, uh, Derek Hudson says, and he just comes out, he says, Bernie, how do you explain your immense popularity amongst young Americans considering the slight age gap? (laughs) (laughs) That's what it says here. (laughs) And the answer is, damned if (laughs) I know.
1: You know, this is the God's truth. When we began the campaign, If you had said the word millennial, I would not have known what you were talking about. I really would. Do you you know now? Yeah, I learned, yes. And I'll tell you what we did not do. We did not sit down with pollsters and focus groups and all that stuff and say, "Okay, how do we, let's poll the young people and see what words and what phrases can move them. We absolutely did not do that. And, And the speeches that we gave. What I said here tonight is you know, kind of what I say all over America. It doesn't matter whether you're young or whether you're old. And I think, I'll tell you one thing, though. This was interesting. And, and, and just as when you mentioned we had a 15-year-old or young people sending in meals, and that means the world to me, if we are engaging those young people to begin thinking uh, politically. Uh, and you did not have the opportunity to experience it tonight. You're kind of lucky. But during the speeches that I gave, I would talk for an hour and 15 minutes, an hour and a half, in defiance of everything that political consultants tell you to do. (laughs) What political consultants tell you, literally, is they poll test a phrase. Okay, Democrats now have the word that chaos is a very important word to use against Trump. It's cost millions of dollars to come up with that phrase. (laughs) (laughs) True. It's absolutely true. So if you see on television somebody saying, this is going to cause chaos, they paid a lot of money to get that word. All right, but we're not that smart. And I would sit down with my yellow pad uh, and actually write the speeches that I gave. And they were the same speeches. And what I think, young, one young man, I can't remember where it was, came up to, it was a big, big rally. And after the rally, I go out and you shake hands. And one guy came up to me and he said, you know, Bernie, thank you so much for treating us as intelligent human beings. Okay? In other words, in other words, just instead of throwing out claptrap and just you know phraseology, you know, we spend time really trying to analyze what the problems facing the country were and what this book is about. The second half of the book is very detailed solutions to some of the problems. And I think people, young people, and others, just respected the fact that this was not a poll-driven campaign, but a campaign that was seriously trying to address the major crises that we face.
0: And <laughs> Bernie, do you, do you think that Trump kind of had to happen for America to look deep into itself?
1: I I haven't thought of a question like that. Um, I am, you know, so that you all know, you know, Hillary Clinton and I engaged in a very difficult primary. But after we lost and after we sat down and worked on a platform which became a very, very progressive platform, I worked as hard as I could uh, to try to get her elected. I went all over the country. And the reason I did that, and there were some people who were angry at me, and they said, look, Bernie, you just, you know, you spent, whatever it was, four, five, six months you know, campaigning against Clinton, and you, you, you told us, you know, all the deficiencies that you had, why are you knocking your brains out trying to get elected? And what I said then is that I think that Donald Trump, if elected president, would be a disaster for our country and the world. And sadly, I think that that is, uh, that is true. Uh, so, you know, we are where we are, uh, and all that I can say right now is that it is imperative uh, that in America, uh, as a result of Trump, to answer your question, that people, and you are beginning to see this, you know, people take democracy for granted. You know, once every few years they're going to go out and vote, but I think people now understand what it means if good people are not actively involved in the political process. And you are seeing that all across the country. So uh, I, I'm not quite sure I would phrase it that Trump had to happen in order for that to occur. Uh, but I think with Trump, what our job is right now is to show the American people how bad and destructive his policies and the policies of the billionaire class that he represents off with the American people and use that moment to move in a very different direction. I think we're beginning to see that, and that's certainly Uh, my my hope that that will occur.
0: Can we switch a bit and talk about the Supreme Court and the changes in the Supreme Court? Uh, Do you think that, for example, Roe versus Wade, this crucial decision on choice, will be reversed or could be reversed?
1: It will come down to one justice at this moment, but in the years to come, there is an absolute likelihood that it could. And it's very sad. I mean, the situation of the Supreme Court is we have more or less five conservatives. And uh, the, there is a real, real possibility that that issue uh, will be brought before the court as well as some others. So when we talk about problems facing the United States of America, it is not just uh, Trump. It is also a very, very conservative Supreme Court. And I worry about that. I worry. You know, women, and I know that this is a controversial issue here in Ireland, but in my country, women have struggled for a long, long time to gain control over their bodies. And what bothers me on this issue, and I respect, and I know there are people who have heartfelt differences of opinion with me on that issue. I understand that, and and I accept that. But I'll tell you what bothers me is the hypocrisy of politicians in the United States, conservatives, who argue, as conservatives, that they want believe in small government. Their mantra is, get government out of the lives of people. Let's deregulate. Let people live their own lives without government interference. But then, at the same time, on a very highly personal issue, they are telling every woman in the United States that the government should control their bodies and I dislike that hypocrisy very much.
0: Can I come back to Trump? Do you think he'll be impeached?
1: Just in passing, you want to raise
0: just, <laughs> yeah, just throw just it there. to make sure
1: do you think he'll be impeached. <laughs> uh, it would be much too premature uh, to give an answer on that. But I'll tell you what is going on and where I think what should go on. There is no debate but that the Russians played a very, very destructive role in our elections with the goal of electing Trump as president. No one denies that anymore. The question is, and we don't know the answer to it at this moment, is was there collusion, active collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russians? And that right now is being investigated, more or less in a bipartisan manner, by the Senate Intelligence Committee and the House Intelligence Committee, and very significantly, Many of us demanded that there be a special prosecutor. And, in fact, that has occurred. A gentleman named Mr. Mueller, who was the former FBI director, who has a lot of bipartisan support. is thought to be an honest, straightforward guy. He is now investigating that issue. If it turns out, and I don't know if it will, that, in fact, Trump, Trump's campaign was in collusion with the Russians, That is a serious crime in the United States of America, and the consequences would be very, very severe. Other issues that are being raised now is Trump fired the FBI director, and he gave one story as to why he fired him, but it turned out the next day he gave a very different story. And there is some belief, again, this has to be investigated, that Trump fired him because he was beginning a very serious investigation of just these issues. Well, in America, you can't fire somebody in the middle of an investigation because you may not like where that investigation goes. That's called obstruction of justice, a very serious crime. But what is very important is that this whole investigatory process be seen, and it must be, done in a nonpartisan way. It does nobody any good, in my view, for me to sit here and yell and scream, oh, yeah, we've got to impeach Trump. You don't impeach somebody because you really disagree with their policies. You've got to impeach them for very serious crimes and misdemeanors. So we've got a process. Uh, I think in the Congress, it has more or less bipartisan support, and we'll see where the facts go. And that's what we have to observe. But all we can ask for now is an aggressive, honest, Nonpartisan investigation.
0: Is, is America not ready for a woman president yet?
1: Bernie. America certainly is ready for a woman president. America is ready for a black president, for a gay president, and I think over the years we have come a long way on that issue. But what is important is that I think America is saying it's not just a woman, although that would be nice to have the first woman president, it's not just the black, it's not just the gay, it's not just the young person or an old person. The president of the United States has got to be a leader who has the guts to take on the billionaire class and work for the working families of this country. That is what is
0: most important. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. Now, if you like our content and you want to support us, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. If you become a patron, you can unlock all sorts of interesting new content, interviews I'm going to be doing, ticket giveaways for those interviews, those conversations with really interesting people, experiences that you can't get anywhere else. And this will ensure that the podcast remains ad-free and you can get all of this stuff for the price of a pint.